So just a quick show of hands. Does, does anybody here remember triptychs from AAA? Anybody use those? Yeah. Triptychs were awesome. They were easily the best part of any family road trip. They were this spiral bound thing and like you would go to AAA, you'd have to go to the AAA office and they had these little sheets like, like you know, regular height of a sheet but this, this wide and they were spiral bound at the top and they would plot out your trip from your house to grandma's and like you would just flip it over. You'd drive to the end of the page, you'd flip it over so you knew where to go. They gave you all the information step by step to get you where you were going. Uh, they were like MapQuest like before everyone had a computer and high-speed internet in their house and could do this for themselves. And for those of you who are too young to remember what MapQuest was, they're like the Google Maps app on your phone before we all carried around something in our pocket with more computing power than NASA had when we were landing people on the moon. So in addition to the AAA triptych, which I was surprised to discover still existed, they, they, there's this also this other type of triptych, and I've come to think of it as the single A triptych. It's called the Aristotelian triptych. There's one big difference, you know, aside from the fact that it's spelled totally differently. Um, instead of getting you from one place to another in your car, the Aristotelian triptych you can use to get you one place to another step by step in communication. If you've ever taken a speech class or, or a writing class at some point, you've probably heard somebody explain the basic format for making an argument kind of like this. Tell them what you're going to tell them, and then tell them, and then tell them what you've told them. Like That's the Aristotelian triptych. I, I've known that method since middle school, but f until Monday I had no idea that it actually had a specific name or that it was 2,400 years old. I was, I was shocked. I, I was blown away. I, I assumed that that was something you know, that, my, uh, uh, that my middle school English teacher came up with. It's, it was very interesting to see that there was uh, a history behind it. And so as we open Galatians this morning, we're going to see that Paul, he takes a very similar approach because Paul is a guy who likes to make a thorough argument. He likes to cover all the bases. He likes to examine things from every angle. He likes to leave no doubt. And that's clearly what he's doing in his letter to the church in Galatia. And so maybe you're wondering, why did Paul write to the Galatian churches? Well, because he planted the church in Galatia, and often to the churches that he had planted, he would continue to write letters to give them encouragement and to correct any misunderstandings that they had about the gospel. This is the early church, very early this letter was probably written in AD 50, so 20 years about since Christ had died. They're figuring things out. They're trying to know and understand to the best of their abilities what God has called them to. And so Paul writes this letter because he hears of this social and ethnic division in the church there that indicated they really had missed something about the gospel. And so, you know, as we've seen, as we've started through Galatians, he, he opens with a personal introduction. He reminds the Galatians who he is, what his credentials are, and why they should trust what he's going to say. He's all like, hey, it's me, Paul. Remember, I'm the guy that planted your church there not long ago? And, and he expounds on that. He explains who he is. And then he says this in, in, in chapter 2, in verses 15 and 16, he gets to the point, and he just really succinctly states his case against those social and ethnic divisions. He says this, he says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That's it. In, in, in those two sentences, that's the central claim. That's the whole point of what Paul is writing about here, which is really just a restating 
of the gospel message. He's clarifying for them, here's the gospel. But because Paul wants to be sure that he gets it, he spends all of chapter 3 and 4 providing evidence in support of his case. And and two weeks ago, when we looked at verses 1 through 14 of chapter 3, we saw how he defended this claim from the Old Testament. And he, he talked there about how the scriptures foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. When he said, all nations will be blessed through you, and and those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. He reminds his Jewish audience that Christ took on the punishment for sin to redeem them, in part so that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ. And so that's where we're going to pick up this morning in in chapter 3, verse 15. Paul's going to communicate the same essential truth over again, but this time he's going to present it through an analogy from everyday life. He's going to break it down in a way that they can understand from looking at the world around them. And and we're going to continue to see the same thread in coming weeks through different lenses because he wants to make sure that they get it. This misunderstanding of the gospel is so important to Paul that he wants to leave no doubt in the mind of his readers. But before we, we fully dive in this morning, I want to make sure that we have all of our definitions right and all of our names straight because this is a pretty dense passage. And this may be boring to all but five of you, but if you stick with me, I promise this will help. So uh, we're going to talk first uh, slide uh, here, the promise, also the covenant. So the, the covenant was made with super old Abraham in B.C. You know, it's probably around 2100 to 1800. Nobody knows exactly. And, and God made the covenant with Abraham, promising to make him into a great nation, that all other nations on earth would be blessed through him. In other words, I will bring salvation to all nations through you, Abraham. We're also going to hear about the law. This was given to Moses uh, so that people would know how to be access- acceptable to God. And this was sometime around 1500 B.C. And then we're also going to hear about something called the seed. And this is not some new agricultural reality show, but it is Jesus. See, Jesus lived a sinless, de- uh, sinless life, but died the death that the law demanded of sinners. He took our place on the cross, and we put our faith in him. Our sins are covered by his sacrifice. The seed fulfills the promise to Abraham by bringing salvation to all through him. And again, that, that death occurred around A.D. 33. So if you keep all this in mind, uh, they're, they're all mentioned here in our text, and, and hopefully that'll be helpful to you. So uh, if you have your Bible with, with you, you can open up uh, to Galatians chapter uh, 3, starting in verse 15, or you can follow along in your bulletin as well. So in Galatians 3.15, it says, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life, just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God, And thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So let's pause here for a second and take a look at these verses before we move along to the rest. Um, In order to bring his argument into everyday terms, Paul talks about human covenants. In some translations, you'll find it translated as, as wills. And it's an analogy to explain the relationship between God and Abraham and the covenant and the laws. And so what Paul is saying is, hey, you guys know from your life experience 
that your covenants and your wills are these binding legal documents that can't just be set aside. And so since that's the case for people, why would it be any different for God's covenant with Abraham? Therefore, salvation, it didn't come through the law, it came through the covenant, which is what Paul is referring to as the promise, because the covenant came before the law. So now Paul has presented his will analogy, and because, like I said, he wants to make a thorough argument, he turns to his favorite rhetorical device. You can see it in several of, of, of his different uh, epistles. And what he likes to do is this. He likes to anticipate the questions of his enemies and then destroy them. Paul has this thing that he does where he anticipates what they're going to say, and then he's like, no, no way. And so in Galatia, Paul's enemies were a group of Jewish teachers. They had risen to prominence, and, and they were convincing the Gentile converts that in order to be fully pleasing to God, they had to follow all the Jewish laws and customs as well. And not just the moral commands, but things like circumcision and the dietary laws. This group was called the Judaizers. And so we're going to pick up in verse 19 where we find Paul's first anticipated question from the Judaizers. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. So there's two, two key pieces of information in these uh, couple of verses here. The first is this. The law was given to reveal the sinfulness of humanity. And it was intended to be temporary. It was only intended to last until the seed to whom the promise referred, also known as Jesus, came along and fulfilled the law. Also, most scholars have no idea what Paul means about the angels here, and they have some guesses, but nothing that's really worth spending our time on this morning. Most do agree that the rest of the verse suggests that since God spoke the law to people through a mediator, that being Moses, but spoke the promise directly to Abraham, the promise would naturally be more absolute than the law. And again, there's some debate around, about, uh, around that as well. And unfortunately for us this morning, it doesn't really, uh, uh, it's not really essential to the argument, so we can, we can push past that. And so then, in verse 21, we get Paul's anticipated follow-up question from the Judaizers. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a promise had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Paul is so insistent on this point that he answers the question in the most emphatically negative way available to him in Greek. He says, Meganoito. What we read in the NIV as absolutely not, if you break it down, literally it means may it never come into being. And this term carries the weight of saying that something is so absolutely absurd that it can't even be considered a legitimate possibility. What Paul is saying here is that it is absolutely absurd to think that the law and the covenant are, are opposed to each other because, because if you're asking the law to give you life, you're asking it to do something it couldn't ever possibly be able and was definitely not intended to do. It'd be like if I went home and I asked my cat Mo to do algebra. No matter how much catnip I promise him, no matter how many belly rubs, no matter how much I let him scratch me, he's never going to be able to solve for X. It's not something he's ever going to be able, and he certainly wasn't intended to do. 
I want to take a minute and look at the story of when God makes this promise to Abraham, because there are a few things in it that I think tell us a lot about God's character and about how he intended to bring salvation to his people. So as we saw before, God promises a childless Abram that he will be a great nation and that all nations will be blessed through him. In other words, salvation will come to all nations through Abram's seed. And then God seals this promise with a covenant. Abraham asked God, Lord, how do I know this will happen? And in Genesis 15, 9, we get the story of, of, of how that promise was sealed with a covenant. And so in Genesis 15, 9, it says this. It says, so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and then, raised, and then arranged the halves opposite each other. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. And when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant to Abram and said to your descendants, I give this land. You know, the next time you say something and the person that you're speaking to doesn't believe you, try cutting five animals in half in front of them, and I promise they will take you more seriously. And I get that this all feels a little weird and morbid, but this was actually the customary way of making a binding contract in that time. It's like us going to the notary and swearing that this will happen. And so the same way that we would like create the contract, it has all the promises and requirements outlined, and then the legal covenants if we break the contract, this ancient ritual would lay out all of the promises and the, re and the requirements. And then the animals would be cut in half, and, 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 and doing that made, made a statement. And that statement was this. If I break this covenant, may the same fate befall me that has befallen these beasts. And then to seal the covenant, they'd set them separate, they'd set the halves of the animals and they'd walk between them. Walking between them was their way of acknowledging that the covenant, the covenant was sealed. What's really fascinating about God's covenant with Abraham is this. God sets up the promises of the covenant. He says, I'll make you into a great nation. All nations will be blessed through you. That's the promise. But where's the requirement? It, it's not there yet. And then the sealing of the, of the covenant required both parties to walk through the, the cut in half animals. But, but what happens? Only God walks through. Abram was asleep. So what does this mean? It means that God's promise of salvation to all nations came through a promise that God made and that God sealed and for which only God accepted the responsibility and the consequences of breaking that promise. He's the only one that passes through. Paul's trying to help us understand. What, what he's saying is, listen, the law was never how God intended to bring salvation because then it would be up to us, but God didn't leave it up to us. Why? Because he loved us. And because he knows we're going to fail. He knows we're going to yell at our kids when all they want is our attention. He knows that we're going to mindlessly go buy things that we don't need while other people go hungry. And he knows that we're going to say things to each other that are so mean we may never really heal from them. He knows that we're going to trade our bodies for love and companionship. He knows we're going to steal. He knows that we're going to lie. And he knows we're going to walk right past him in our constant and compulsive pursuit of our own amusement. He knew all of this before he created us. But he didn't want to spend eternity without us. And so he left it up to himself instead. 
to lean on Paul's analogy about a person's will for a second, the, the only way to receive the inheritance that's promised in a will is receiving it as the gift of the one whose will it is. The only way to receive the promise that God made to Abram and his seed is from the grace of God through faith in the one who fulfilled that, Jesus Christ. And that's good news. It's good news on at least two levels because that is the actual message of, of the gospel, the, the good news. And, and second, it turns out that Paul agrees with Zach Van Dyke when he says that it's all about grace. And we could also go vice versa on that. Maybe Paul came first and, and Zach is leaning on him there, but you know, it's up to you. And so at this point, maybe you're thinking, I know this already. I get it. It's all about grace. But my question to you this morning is, do you live like it? And where in your life are you asking something to do what it was never able or intended to do? And more importantly, how is that working out for you? Last week, Herndon student minister Micah Candeletta Berkland and I spent three days out in Pasadena at Fuller Seminary. And we're a part of this Fuller Youth Institute Youth Ministry Innovation Cohort. And, and we took part in this cohort last year, and we were invited back this year because the driving focus of Summit students is very much the same as Fuller Youth Institute. We want to make sure that we are constantly learning and growing so that we are doing the absolute best that we can to find ways to engage young people in meaningful conversations about faith. And so as a part of this year's cohort, one of the things that we had to do was interview a handful of students from, from our church. And, and these other churches that are a part, they interviewed uh, students from their churches as well. And so when we got out to, to Fuller for this three-day summit, one of the first things we did is we took all of this information we'd gathered, these interviews that we had done, and we sat and we thought, okay, so what are the things that we can learn from these interviews? How can we process this? And then they asked us to do one thing with them. They gave us these sheets of post-it notes, the big ones, and then they said this. They said, in light of the interviews that you guys did, in light of what you've learned and what you know about your students, write down what you think is the current flawed narrative that drives your students' lives. 31 churches from across the country were represented there in that room. We were diverse geographically, theologically, and culturally. And there were some really striking similarities in the narratives that each one of us posted. Here's just a few to give you an idea. One church said that the narrative that their students believed was, I am a reflection of my grades. Another said, being is not enough. Another said, my curated online identity is more significant than my created or God-given identity. One said, I have to be perfect, or at least look like it. Another said, the things that I do and the things that I achieve give me the right to fit in. Another said, I must succeed socially, academically, financially. And yet another said, I must contribute something in order to matter. And also one said, I am... am I'm the only one who struggles like this. And y'all, there were more of these. There were 31 statements up there that when you read them, you looked at them and thought, what's going on? And just to be honest, ours is one of these. The statement that we believe, our students believe, their flawed narrative is one of those. 
And look, there's a belief behind every narrative. And, and based on, on what we saw, it would appear that one of the most commonly held beliefs among high schoolers in, in churches across the United States, from Spokane to here in Orlando and a dozen or more other places in between, is that their value is in what they do rather than who they are. And see, the problem with flawed narratives is that they don't just affect one part of our lives. And, 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 and it's not just that the thinking is flawed and, and that the actions uh, are, 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 are flawed. It's that they, we start to trust those actions. We trust them to do something they can't actually do. It breaks my heart to know that this is the story that our students and students across the U.S. live in. And, and whether or not you have high school-age students or work with high school-age students, I would imagine on some level it breaks your heart too. And so as we sat around our table after we'd written down these, these, these narratives that our students believe, we wondered, where are students getting this message? And we asked, and we talked, and we talked about it, and we tried to figure it out. And, and, and over time, we came to the realization, they get it from us. And I'm not just talking about youth pastors, but parents and teachers and coaches and the other adults in their lives. And it's not that we're telling them directly that their only value is in what they do and that achievement is the only thing that will lead to fulfillment. But, but to be honest, we communicate it in what we praise. We communicate it in what we celebrate, with what we value. And more importantly, in how we model it in our own lives. And listen, I get it. I'm a three. And I'm not talking about my appearance. I'm talking about my Enneagram. And, and I figured since everybody else has shared theirs that I would, I would share mine with you too. See, see, we threes, we are the achievers or the performers. We're success-oriented, adaptable, excelling, driven people whose basic desire is to feel valuable and worthwhile. And our basic fear is that we're worthless. A few months ago, before I began my Enneagram journey, I um, was having lunch one Saturday over some awesome barbecue uh, with my wife Karen and our friend Johnny. We started talking about what's on our bucket list. What are the things that we would want to do, the places we want to see someday? And, and my wife and, and, and Johnny, they had these great, like, super fun things and, and cool experiences they want to have. And, and, and then I said, I want to make a meaningful contribution to how people understand or practice student ministry. My bucket list, the thing that came out of my mouth first, was about achieving something. It was about doing something that I thought would give my life value. And I definitely get the tendency. I definitely get the tendency to feel like I am only worth what I produce. Now, the problem is, even if I do someday make a meaningful contribution to the field of student ministry, it won't do anything for me in here. It will not give me any value in my life. It's just a thing. It's not what gives my life value. Ian Morgan Cron, who studies and teaches the Enneagram, he said that America as a country is a three. The American dream, our national narrative, is all about achievement. So we live lives that are about always doing and always going and never being lazy and looking good while we do and while we go so that we can keep up with our neighbors and so that hopefully we can get ahead of them so that we can feel happy about who we are. Is it any wonder that our kids and, and we ourselves try to find our worth in what we're doing or what we're producing? We are telling ourselves all the time that that's what matters. And y'all, it would be bad enough if this was only about work or school, 
But the problem is we wait, the way that we live our lives in one area, it eventually it seeps over into other areas. Nothing is left unaffected. It'll bleed into everything else, including our spiritual life. What's the narrative of your relationship with God? If you were honest, is the story of your faith one of living in God's grace? Or do you live, at least on some level, like your, like your ability to do what's good and, 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 and avoid what's not good will help you earn your right standing before God? Do you mix God's gift of free grace with some amount of legalistic pride or a dash of self-righteousness? And again, how's that working out for you? And I think that part of what makes the grace narrative so attractive to many of us is that it is one place in our life One place where we don't have to achieve anything. But the problem is, we're so accustomed to striving that we're not comfortable that way. And so we we take this free gift and we start to add to it these other things. We, We start to ask our spiritual goodness and our achievements and holiness to be capable of doing something they can't do, which is justify us before God. What's the legalism that you've adopted for yourself? Listen, if you are struggling today under the weight of feeling like you can't live up to what God wants from you, if you feel like you haven't held up your end of the bargain, if you feel like you're a failure as a Christian, if you've blown it and you feel like you can't face God, I need you to know that nothing could be further from the truth. You see, God loves you beyond your wildest dreams, so much so that he sent his son to die for you exactly as you are right now. His voice this morning isn't the one that's standing over you saying, how many times are you going to do this? Why can't you just get it together? I'm so tired of this. No, the voice of God, he's speaking over you this morning, I love you. Just let it all go and have faith. All you got to do is accept that there is no way you can make yourself good enough for God. There's no standard that you can hold yourself to that would impress God enough to get you into heaven. You can't do it, and that is actually really good news because God already did through his son, Jesus. And look, that doesn't mean that that God doesn't want you to grow and to learn to live more and love more like Jesus, but it absolutely means that no matter how good you get at living or loving like Jesus, it will never make any difference in whether or not you are loved or accepted by God. In fact, the worst thing that can happen, not just to us, but especially those around us, is that we have any success in living up to the legalistic rules we create for ourselves. Because when we adopt legalism personally, no matter, no matter what, we start, to, we start to impose it corporately. And doing that just makes other people beholden to the same, the same broken things, the same laws, the same things that we are asking to do what, what, what they can't do. In Galatia, the way that manifested was that some people were attempting to force others into following the Jewish law in addition to following Christ. And, and I bet the chances are pretty low that any of us will try to force anyone else into observing Jewish law. But, but that's not to say that we are without our own struggles in this area, because what, what makes legalism so insidious is that from the inside, it, it so often looks like a commitment to righteousness. But really, it just is the standard by which we judge those who do things differently. Guys, Paul never denies that there are differences between the Jewish and Gentile believers, but but what he denies is that those differences matter. 
And as we become more multi-ethnic and more multi-generational here, there will be people who come through these doors who are not like us. And, and that's the goal, that they get to know that they are loved by God and that they can have the promise through faith in Jesus Christ, not by any sort of works, not even the work of becoming like us. Y'all, our call isn't to make disciples in our own image. It's to make them in God's. Our call is to invite those who are not like us to the table as brothers and sisters, without asking them to do anything more than accept the promise of grace through faith. Thankfully, uh, at the summit uh, out, at, out at Fuller, we didn't stop at writing down our students' current flawed narrative because that would have been the most depressing conference ever. Instead, once we had named those flawed narratives, we spent time coming up with the new Jesus-centered narrative that we want to work to replace those with. And every single one of those narratives was an expression of what it would look like for our students to live in God's grace. And so just in case you need to be reminded of those things, here are a few, of what, here are a few things that we came up with. And your value is determined by whose you are, not by anything that you do. You are a child of God and you are loved and accepted as you are. Even though you're not perfect, you are perfectly loved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for going to the cross and bearing the penalty for our sins so that we didn't have to. Thank you that it is all about grace. God, help us to live like that's true. Search our hearts and root out the places where we lean into ourselves and into our own abilities. Reveal to us the places that we are holding ourselves and others to the standard that you are not. Give us the strength to let go and fall on your grace either for the first time or for the millionth time. Remind us that our value is determined by whose we are and not what we have accomplished. Remind us that we are your children and that you love us and accept us as we are. Remind us that even though we're not perfect, we are perfectly loved. And give rest to our weary hearts. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the strong Son of God. Amen.